0: Today's episode is brought to you by the Vegas Beer Guys and the Brew Bar.
1: Everything Sequel contains explicit language. And why the fudge not, you melon farmer?
0: Hello and welcome to the Everything Sequel podcast. The Harry Potter Edition. My name is Michael Chance. Willingly and happily here from the How Dare You Awards. With me is Tom Stewart from Lonesome Whistle Productions.
1: Say hi, Tom. You've just ruined the punchline of my Japanese golfer joke. <laughs> R.I.P. Richard Griffith. When did he die? Few years ago. Really? Mm-hmm. Oh shit. Sad loss.
0: That's terrible. It is. I can't believe I didn't know that or forgot that. But, but it or... his
1: uh his evil double from Naked Gun Two and a Half is still around. Oh yeah. With his po with his grey ponytail. <laughs> All right, ladies and gentlemen, today
0: we are talking about the 2002 film, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, directed by Christopher Columbus. Mm-hmm. Tom, you had this as your second favorite, correct? Certainly. And I had this as my third favorite film in the series. This is a movie with a budget of $100 million, made $262.4 million in the U.S. of A, 879 dollars cumulatively mm. in the world. That's a smashing success. certainly is. We talked in our ranking episode about Christopher Columbus himself. Mm -hmm. He directed the first movie and this movie back to back. Right. And after that...
1: That explains why he didn't feel the need to explain anything to someone coming in for the first time. I don't think he could conceive of a world in which somebody would start watching at movie two. It's
0: like th- Okay? Yeah, but if someone yeah.
1: is, you need to throw them a bone. You can't just have people say their names and not put those names in context.
0: What's it matter? You just think everybody and everyone's from the original anyways. So,
1: like every other sequel What's we it watch. matter? <laughs> what, what? What's it matter when ten minutes in you're throwing me a wizard Narnia... Like, what is this uh, Narnia for wizards? What's going on? <laughs>
0: oh, shit. All right. So we were talking, not at length, but we talked, you know, we talked a bit about Christopher Columbus yeah. in the first episode. Mm-hmm. And I think Christopher Columbus, i even in the episode, I referred to him as more of a cookie cutter director. Yeah. But I like he is a he is a director that I think knows what works. I mean, mm. Adventures in Babysitting, Home Alone, Mrs. Doubtfire. Yeah, you know, I yeah. I mean, I think that sums it up kind of
1: perfectly. He knows how to make a movie work, and I think that's at play here in this movie. He 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 also knows, and I think this is crucial to why this eventually became uh, one of the better movies in the series for me. He knows how to make kids movies that adults can still appreciate. Yeah. Like as this movie went, like the the, the sort of the body horror aspects of this movie, which is, you know, a, a kind of for adult movie fans, not kids, was really well handled. But with enough kind of plausible deniability to keep it a kids movie. So in the end, we kind of err on the side of gross out comedy. Which marries those mm-hmm. worlds together. So, like kids, kids love gross things. Horror movies are full of gross things. Let you, you know, that's where we come out in the wash a lot of the time in this movie. And I learned to appreciate that because I don't feel like other directors in this series were really understanding that at some level these had to be k- kid-friendly comedies. Mm-hmm. I love the fact that. Well, I, I that, love the fact I mean, that that more bad things happen in this movie than in any of the other movies, but it doesn't feel like it. Like the mass murder of children happens in this right. movie, right. <laughs> <laughs> but they bring them all back to life, so it's fine. So it's fine. But uh, and you know, like so. So if you you know, when you're an adult, you've got a murder mystery to deal with, you've got a body horror um, kind of thing going on. But if you're a kid, you've got a perfectly serviceable. High school comedy to work with, so I sure you know cook in that sense cookie cutter wouldn't be pejorative to me. I think I think the franchise really, at least at this stage, really needs someone who's able to, especially with the kids being that young, like all the kid mm-hmm. actors being that young. You can't be having them do you know decidedly adult things without some kind of make-believe aspect you know suspension of disbelief yeah yeah i'll agree with that
0: so now you said that you upon a first viewing (laughs) this was gonna be low yeah but then after seeing the other movies it came back up yeah so do you credit that to Christopher Columbus or
1: yeah I credit him that with him getting the tone right Okay uh, and I didn't realize at the time quite how skillful the balancing act he was pulling off was um mm-hmm. and also you know it, it's it's interesting he he's all also, also, you know, he's a cookie cutter filmmaker, but he's also a very Hollywood centric filmmaker. Like mm. this feels very Spielbergian. Uh, the use of John Williams yeah, music, it does. the way that he yeah. handles, um, you know, fantasy and, and kids. There are times where the camera's slithering like a snake. Yeah. You know, that kind of stuff. Side note. Why can't they get snakes right in CGI? I uh, see I think the basilisk
0: uh the basilisk looks great. Is that what it is?
1: Is that yeah. a snake?
0: I yeah, no I, end- I
1: have a note that says, why can't they get snakes right in CGI? They can do dragons. Isn't that the same thing? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know which is more ignorant, the filmmaker or me. Well, are me? you
0: talking? Are you talking more specifically about Voldemort's snake?
1: I don't know which snake. There's a snake in here at some point that I thought that looks like it's from. Oh, it's from a nineteen. 19- you're talking
0: about the Dueling Club.
1: Yeah, that looks like it's from a nineteen seventies episode of Doctor Who.
0: Yeah, you're right about that. <laughs> it looks like
1: it's the animated cobra.
0: From uh Ricky Tiki Tabby. Yes. <laughs> that's what it looks like. I'll agree with that. <laughs> okay. But well, that was a side note anyway. I um But right, that's a side note in a scene that I really like. I like the dueling club scene. Yeah. And I think comically, one of the things that makes this movie work so well is the
1: addition of Kenneth Branagh. Oh my god, I could not agree with you more. I just love him in this movie. And here's this is another battle for me because you probably don't know. This is no reason why you would. And you would suspect as a Brit that I'd be all over him. But I can't mm-hmm. stand Kenneth Branagh as a leading man or a director. But oh, interesting. when he's in a movie as either comic relief or a villain, I think there's no one better. And mm-hmm. this role is fucking perfect because he is both so good for him and turns out to be the villain. Yeah. And you know what? Like you, you were asking in the previous podcast about like, how has this franchise passed you by? And I Mm -hmm. remember being in college when this came out and people, you know, around me were watching this movie. And I even remember at the time they They said, you've got to see this movie. And I gave you the same answer. It's like, no, not interested. And they said, don't have to. He said, but the guy that Kenneth Branagh plays is so much like one of our lecturers. It's scary. Like right down to the haircut. Oh, wow. And the same backstory. He was a little bit of a celebrity who got above his station and was lecturing us about things that he didn't really know about. And I was just like, (laughs) I was like, oh, my God. Like, and, and, you know, so that had an added value for me. You know, there's a general truth there about celebrity academics or experts who are just Mm -hmm. like taking up tenure at universities. Certainly, all around Britain, I suspect it's the same here. Like, sure, you know, the person who should be doing this job is just less well known, so they don't get the job. Uh, But because this person's written a, you know, a a book, a book, yeah, right. But it was also like in terms of J.K. Rowling. I thought it was really interesting in those early scenes where he's at the book signing. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't know if this is the case in the book or whether the movie sort of um, played this up a bit more. But it seems, it just feels like J.K. Rowling's really biting the hand that feeds her by having this satire of, like, book signings. It's like you're making fun of all the fans who waited. At, you know, overnight in line at bookstores. Like, well, this is the reason you have money. Like, I just... I didn't feel like that was a huge part in play at the book signing. And, the, you know, the the branner character in his book Magical Me, it seemed to me to yeah. be like a satire of the commercialization of literature. And I wrote down, glass houses, J.K. Rowling, glass houses. <laughs> Um, I I didn't take it as that. I I took it as, you know. But the character is fucking brilliant. A satire of the man, not the, yeah. The character is fucking brilliant. There is a a moment in here where I imagine this is what Kenneth Branagh sees in his dreams. Where he walks past uh, an animated painting of himself (laughs) doing a painting. And they both wink at each other. That's like that's what's going on in Kenneth Branagh's head right, <laughs> right. now. <laughs> He's it's just abs- it's absolutely brilliant, and you know in in a you know we talked a little bit about how the sort of the defense of the dark arts teacher is is always like the kind of novelty casting mm-hmm. in the in the in the future movies, but I don't actually think it ever gets any better than this. No, yeah, and I would I are talking like. Jim Broadbent, Brendan Gleeson, the the best yeah. actors in the world, and still right. my favourite is Kenneth Branagh. Yeah, <laughs> playing what the worst teacher of those people, the
0: worst teacher ever.
1: Right, he's hapless. Even Umbridge is competent if evil.
0: Yeah, I, I, you can, know, I, I suppose she she would be she would be competent if she was actually teaching them fucking jack shit. I, I don't know.
1: She does. She makes them sign their, you know, do lines in blood. Fuck, <laughs> that can't be easy. <laughs> so yeah, I I I mean, I'm glad you mentioned Branna because I have nothing but good things to say about about that. And I don't. And and it's not. That's not a given. It's a given that I'd love. Probably all the other actors in this movie, all the other, well,
0: I was sorry, all the other grown-up that.
1: actors in this movie. But Okay, so, <laughs> so what's it like
0: coming in cold to Chamber of Secrets? You still haven't seen the Sorcerer's Stone. Mm-hmm. And, but you said, so you said you had a little trouble, right? Let me, let me quote
1: from my notes. Okay. I don't know what's happening. <laughs> and I don't know if you can understand if you haven't read the book or are a fan what
0: is it that you're not understanding like well, them getting on platform I nine and three quarters or getting on a train
1: or like it's you know nothing's I, like too... I said everyone is saying saying oh it's Hagrid oh it's, it's like but, yeah, but I don't know who these people are I need to know who they are I don't need to know what their names are like I can read that on IMDb but it means nothing. But you to can me. tell. But it's not. It's it's
0: plainly obvious that Hagrid is friend to the children, right? It's plainly obvious that Snape does not like Harry Potter. Correct?
1: Yeah, I said. Sub- yeah, I mean, I I I I'm not. <laughs> I'm not fucking In this brain movie, dead. We see I see the guess. Weasley towards <laughs> the big. The, I'm talking about. I'm <laughs> talking about the finer points of the mythology that actually sort of. Do make a difference, and and you know, I like you alluded to it before. Like, you know, if you 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 you're you know, my record on guessing what's the see when I haven't seen the original, what's the sequel <laughs> right. thing, and what's from the original is very poor. I'm not dealing with a good average here already. <laughs> but I I had a similar thought here where I was like, uh, all these characters are being reintroduced as if we should know who they are but I'm at a loss to know which ones are new and which ones are legacy characters. Well, let me ask you this. Did you know... I mean, it seems obvious to me that
0: this is the first time we're meeting Mr. Weasley.
1: <laughs> no, I
0: didn't. I thought... But they introduce Harry That's to him. That's what I'm
1: saying! I don't know! I don't know!
0: <laughs> so this is the first time we see the Weasley home. They have the great Even clock Julie that Walters? tells... And the sister? We see Julie Walters in the first movie when Harry is at... When he's getting on to... He doesn't know how to get onto platform nine and three quarters. And she helps him. So that's how he meets Ron. There,
1: there was... T- tell you what, it's the... I had to do everything backwards. So when... Speaking of that platform scene, the fact that he tried to jump through the wall, but it didn't disappear. Right. In my head, I just went, okay. So in the first one, he jumped through. Fine. Yeah. So okay. I had to, ju- but I, I had to do that with everything.
0: <laughs> what? Well, it's like you're complaining that you had to think while watching the It's not about. Movie. Thi- it's not about. It's okay to think. I mean,
1: we talked a little bit about this off air when I first started watching this over three years ago, um, <laughs> and and I said that you know this is a this seems very modern to me to put the burden on the viewer to catch up. Whereas, you know, look at the, you know, the movies that we've done from the 70s and the 90s. They will tell you everything you need to know again at the beginning of a sequel.
0: Well, apparently not, though. You thought Cherry Gans was in the first 48 hours. <laughs> what are you talking about?
1: <laughs> but they there, there were kind of... You're like, those bikers, they're totally in the first movie, right? No. No. There are, there are certain story mechanisms, conventions, that, um, that sequels of the past have done to catch up the viewer and assume they haven't seen anything before.
0: No, okay, I, I get that. And yeah. this
1: is very much like, you know, the onus is on you to have either read the books or seen the original and to just generally know what's going on. And I'm not... I mean, obviously, that's annoying to me as someone who happens to be in that position. But I just think it's a historical thing. It's like, I guess it would be the same if I went into, you know, the middle of Infinity War. They wouldn't have a bit at the beginning, which is like... Let's catch you up. Right. (laughs) You know? Uh, I just need, I just need, like... But... So I became nostalgic for those. I don't be-
0: know though. Like I just, I think I just disagree. You know, like you understand that the Dursleys hate Harry Potter. That's plainly evident at the beginning of this movie.
1: Yeah, well, yeah, emo- the emotions are clear because Chris Columbus knows how to do that, and he's not exactly like right. subtle. But I just and yeah, you know, I just don't. Yeah, I just just story wise, and you know, I, I I don't I don't know. Well, I do know why we can't do it, because corporations want you to buy every piece of media associated with it. It's why The Rise of Skywalker (laughs) alludes to comics that haven't even been written yet. Mm -hmm. You know, um, because they want you to buy everything. It's like, you know, cross-promotion cross yeah. Mar- yeah. So I do, I get it, I get it from that respect. But it, it's, you know, I, 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 just became nostalgic for all those, all those clunky things that sequels do that we've been satirizing all this time. Mm-hmm. I felt like, you know, I could do with this now. Um, <laughs> that was it. Uh, by the all end right. of the movie, I kind of knew what was going on. I think, kind of, sort of, sorta. You caught up. Yeah. You you're, you were able to catch
0: up with this children's. movie? Tell you what else
1: is incredibly distracting is that you can't turn a corner in this movie without running into a British national acting treasure. True. Like Hogwarts is basically the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts. Oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, just another even though reason I to knew, fucking love these movies. Even though I knew that going in, it still took me aback. That, like, <laughs> there's Jason Isaacs. There's Robbie Coltrane. Then there's a bit of the movie where no one there's no one, and then Julian Glover. And it's like, I cannot believe the amount of talent and star power that is driving this movie. Oh hell yeah. Um And the it's it's really interesting because it's all British in nature. But yeah. the way the movie is made could not be more Hollywood. I think that was the point I was trying to get to earlier. That okay, and there's yeah, a really yeah. weird there's a really that's a really weird juxtaposition that that kind of works but it it what's kind of weird about it is it's like it's both extremes because you're like you know when you have a you know a ghost cameo of John Cleese you know that's the most british thing you could imagine <laughs> right <laughs> and and All you right. have John Williams musical scoring which is the most sure thing that you most uh, associate with big Hollywood movies of the yeah. of the recent era it's like I never really felt those two things were clashing but I did notice the discrepancy of I guess what's on screen and then and how it's represented on screen just because yeah. everything just All because right. the Britishness in it is so quintessentially iconographically British, British. British. you know it's a Mon- yeah. Monty Python Leslie Phillips you know a British uh sex comedy movie actor from the nineteen sixties as the talking hat as the sorting hat. It's not the talking hat, the sorting hat. I'm annoying so many get people. Your shit I should open it fucking You're my gonna get in trouble, mouth, buddy. should I? Oh my god. <laughs> the talking hat. You all know the talking hat. <laughs> oh my
0: god. Alright, we're like just getting off, started here. Friends. I'm gonna give I'm gonna give Tom a little break, a breather, so he can get his shit together before he's murdered. Give us a tie, a little, a couple of minutes. Listen to something fabulous, and we'll be right
1: back after. This. I'll put my affairs in order.
0: There you go. Can I ask you a question? Do you like beer? I like beer. It's required by law that you like beer when you're living in San Diego, California, but even I can get confused and dizzied by the amount of choices that you can see at your local beer store. What's a person to do? I'll tell you what you do. You'll watch The Vegas Beer Guys, a live show on Instagram and Facebook, and they will set you right as to what beers you should have in your life or should not have in your life. The Vegas Beer Guys are brought to you by Dan Aker, The beer professional and Stephen Weiss, self proclaimed beer novice. They'll drink beers for you and drink beers with you. Go ahead and check out their live shows and they'll tell you which beers you should be having in your fridge. Everybody wants the perfect combination of molten hops in your life, and Dan Aker and Stephen Weiss are the perfect combination of fantastic and wonderful. Check them out on Facebook, check them out on Instagram. Find them, you're going to watch their show and love their show. They give away free merch during their shows, So go ahead and check out the Vegas Beer Guys. What a great time. And we're back. Tom and I are here, of course, discussing the 2002 film, uh, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. Tom, I don't imagine there's a lot of people uh, listening to this who are like you, who (laughs) need a refresher course, but... What's the, what's what's the plot of this particular film? What happens? Uh
1: Or is this something you need me to do? Oh it's yeah, it's like a it's it's like a murder mystery. Okay, yeah. At, at some point in the movie kids start dying or in big numbers. Freezing. They don't close the school? Nope. Which is weird. <laughs>
0: It threatened many, many yeah, many. Yeah, he times. says it, it, i think
1: I think the term that, that Richard Harris's Dumbledore uses, he actually uses the phrase, it is likely we will have to right. close the school. We're about five kids
0: dead. Five at this kids point. deep. <laughs> Minerva McGonagall at one point says, I'm afraid we're gonna have to close the school if
1: <laughs> Yeah right. Um and this relates to a kind of cabinet that uh, allows Chris Columbus to pull a little thing out of a big thing um there's lots of Indiana Jones labyrinthy stuff and <laughs> are you getting this or is this is this too complicated for you um <laughs> I'm wondering if you're getting
0: this <laughs> Um, but Harry Potter he is back for his second year at the wizarding school not for the first 30 she... minutes.
1: True. And I, and I I was I was like I thought okay classic sequel inversion this one is not going to be in the school or we're going to see a lot less of the school. But it's only 30 <laughs> only 30 minutes of a 2 hour 40 movie is not at the school. And do you have a big problem with that the 2 hours
0: and 40 minutes? for one of the shortest books. So basically they're just cramming everything that's in the book
1: in the movie. Uh at the time I was definitely pissed because that that's much longer than 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 I feel we've ever done before. And
0: maybe that's why you like uh Order of the Phoenix so much cuz that's like the biggest book
1: and the shortest movie. But to be honest, I like I think it doesn't drag as much for me. I think because As they announce uh, early on in the movie, there is a plot. Uh, This is one of the more plot-heavy, in in terms of what I think of plot, not like, you know, the murder mystery element, the trying to find something out that you actually find out. Mm -hmm. A lot of the other movies in this series don't work on that basis. It's not always clear what we're trying to find out, and we don't find it out for a lot of these movies but that's right. that's more a problem of it being an ongoing series and that's another thing i loved about this is it felt so self-contained and i again as the movies went on i learned to admire this that it was giving you more giving you something that was very like cut and dry in terms of like plot mechanics okay even though i apparently can't tell you what that plot is now Um, but, uh, yeah. And, and it so I, I thought I could, you know, I was working, I was backtracking going, well, what are they doing differently this time? That must be what happened in the first movie. Um, but I could, but what I could see and, you know, I'm, I'm not, you know, my movie brain kind of set in where I, I could see like, okay, so here's the formula. He goes to the train station. It's a new school year. He pisses off Uncle Vernon, goes to school, right, goes um, on the train, wizard Narnia, um, into school. The school year starts, new defense of the Dark Arts League teacher. And and that, you know, the the pretty much Pretty much. I mean, each of these movies that's how until you get
0: to the last two follows a school year,
1: right? And that that's that's. So you have fall, you have winter,
0: yeah. you get into spring, and
1: coincidentally, that's pretty much how sequels work, isn't it? Like, especially horror sequels seem to have this one year gap between the movies, right? Except, you know, in the world of the movies, you have a one year gap, but because of the release structure of these movies, we're actually working on the same. They're syncing up. Because these right. movies are being released one year after the other. Well, just for the first two.
0: After that, they have to start putting a little more space in between the movies. Okay, so it, it's, it, ju- it's just too much of a, a pace for them to, you know, keep up with. Well, I actually
1: made that note. I said we, we, we're like we're a year in the real world and we're a year in the world of the film. I wonder if this right. we keep with this. I mean, it's probably not as bad as like. You know, those horror movies that are like, oh, Karate Kid is probably the worst, isn't it? Where it's like one year, but 10 in the real, 10 in our world. Um, So
0: (laughs) One year in the character's life and 40 years in in real life.
1: That's right. Um, And, you know, I I, I could see lots of reunions. You know, it felt felt very much like, you know, I don't know how it works in the book, but it felt very much like... Uh, I guess you have a built-in reunion because of the school year. Yeah, sort of. I mean, you
0: know, because Harry is always at home with the Dursleys, and the Dursleys are who they are. He has very little contact with his friends.
1: I mean, in this movie, they literally have to break him out <laughs> with the flying car, which I loved. I loved that kind of Herbie Love Bug vibe. Yeah, and you know that that's that kind of those. For want of a better word, Disney movie things, I kind of learn. I, I kind mm-hmm. of learned to miss. I think. I mean, as much as I love Prisoner of Azkaban, I think that is the transition where those things that are just kind of oh, yeah. just kind of cute and funny become really scary. Like yeah. the but well, well and, that buzz uh, like I, I you know that, I have notes I have notes
0: for each of these movies. You can even notice with the Warner Brothers logo.
1: <laughs> That's a whole how story dark. in itself.
0: Yeah, like how dark these movies progressively get. It's like when does you know? that
1: become just a wrought iron gate? Exactly. <laughs> that yeah.
0: Somewhere around in the six or seven part one, you know. I mean it just gets worse and worse for the poor Warner Brothers logo. Yeah. Um, <laughs> where it's like rotting from the inside out because of how dark the movies are getting.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But it's interesting, I you know, with this movie. You know the crux of the crux of this story is horror that. Crux. See, I did learn something. <laughs> you did. Look at you go. <laughs> I needed to... the horror crux of this. I movie. don't know if
1: I'd have remembered it if I didn't write it down twenty times. But okay. <laughs> I still don't know what it is. But...
0: <laughs> come, on, come on, come on. Um. So what's happening in this movie is they're back at school. And kids aren't dying though, Tom. They're petrified. They're frozen. They're petrified.
1: Yeah, and they set that up, you know they set that up early with the cat, and at the mm-hmm. time I knew I was like, oh, this is how they're gonna get out of genocide of children. Right. <laughs> I was like, at this point, but that, but this is what I this is what I like about the kind of horror aspects, and this feels very gremlin-y, like. Mm-hmm. from that point onwards where they show you the petrified cat, they've got permission to kill as many kids as they want. <laughs> and they, like, I wrote down, like, what, you know, at the end of the movie, I was like, what what has happened, you know, in terms of violence in this movie? And it's shocking. Yeah. It's absolutely right. shocking.
0: Well, that's one of the, also, it's one of the weaker points of this book and, in turn, the movie Where it's still the this movie is far darker than the first movie. Mm.
1: But I I actually asked I had a question. I asked that as a question in my notes. Like, is the Sorcerer's Stone as fucked up as this? No. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's
0: it still has those elements, but it's not, you know, progressively each movie gets darker and darker Mm -hmm. and darker. But, I, I, but, the, but one, in terms of- the one thing about the book and the movie is this th- that very idea of, uh, you know, you still in the back of your mind know that everybody's going to be okay. We yeah. haven't started taking lives for real yet. Right. And be- because out of happenstance, seeing through a ghost, seeing through the reflection in the water, using a mirror, whatever it is, yeah. nobody actually dies. Mm-hmm. And so that's still the very kid-friendly portion of this movie. That,
1: mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not mad at no. it, but it's, I, I, yeah. it, it's, it's strong. It would seem it it would border on being offensive and tasteless to have a mo- to to kill so many children of that age in a movie. I think,
0: <laughs> right. And still not closing the school. The I'm amount so of shit that goes on it. in this school from year to year is astonishing. It is.
1: Um, so, but it, I, I just, I think it's very, it's very effective because then, you know, Chris Columbus has obviously made a lot of kids movies, so he knows industrially how it all works. And here he's sort of like, you know, the the plot is its own censorship because you can do all these horribly fucked up things to kids and then immediately walk them back by the nature of the plot.
0: And I kind of thought that, you know... the first two movies have a... To your point, because of the mystery element, they have a real kind of Scooby-Doo feeling to them.
1: They they certainly do. Um, Yeah. Yeah, like, you know, I said it felt like Inspector Morse at one point. Yeah. yeah, so I I I think, I think that's a good, for this stage when the kids are this young who are in the movie mm-hmm. and it's about kids of this age. I think that's the I think that's exactly where they should be pitching it. Right, I, I think
0: you're right in the sense of Christopher Columbus. He gets tone, so tonally, it's right where it should be.
1: But it also doesn't mean that those things. I mean, you were saying that you know the kids are not dead, but. In terms of what's being represented, they are being horribly murdered. Like we kind of get to see that. We don't get the consequences of it, but we still get to see yeah. it. And I liked, I liked that kind of. You know, it's a, like, it's a sort of guilty pleasure, really, isn't it? Of like, you know, we are an adult horror movie, but you know, basically, it's all a dream. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought, I thought that was. Great, and and more generally, I think it speaks to the way that magic is great for sequels. This ability to bring mm-hmm. people back from the dead really helps out when you're making a bunch of movies <laughs> where you want characters to die or nearly die. Right, but you you also know that there's this built-in kind of like all you need is some mandrake juice, you know? Yeah, you need like the Deus the 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 Deus Ex Machina of of magic to kind of like, uh, or, I mean, literally in in. In the end, like Christ-like resurrection of mm-hmm. Harry Potter, I'm curious about something. I want to ask you
0: because you haven't seen the first movie. Mm-hmm. What would you think of Quidditch? I knew
1: you were going to say that. How did I know you were going to say that? <laughs> uh, well, I did what I <laughs> I did what I uh, what you will find out I do with most of this. Where I I try and think about something that I know and like to kind of get me into it um uh-huh. and with here i was thinking uh you, well this is like pod racing right <laughs> <laughs> so offensive if you like these movies oh my so god offensive. i thought but i thought um music sound effect wise it reminded me of pod races there's this little kid um i thought the effects look great well, and that's the thing, because you haven't seen the first movie. So for me, the
0: jump in the quality of how Quidditch looks yeah. from the first movie to the second movie—it was seamless. It is is really, you know, astonishing. I think it it looks so good in this movie, so much better. Yeah,
1: I, I definitely. I remember thinking that looks really seamless, and I remember th- I. I've, you know when we get introduced to Dobby, the house elf, quite early on, and I remember mm-hmm. thinking, you know, this looks better than, say, *Phantom Menace*, but we're still a little ways from full integration of CGI characters into the action. I think by the end of the series, we've got there. Um, yeah, but uh, I found, I mean, Dobby was kind of an area where I began to question whether they were. The issues-wise, they were take they were taking on more than they could chew, because to me, how do you mean issues? With, I mean like because the
0: issues of the CGI, no, or no, 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 the um, character, or
1: I thought, you know, I thought it would it was no, I thought the fact that because these house elves seem to me to be about slavery and torture, whenever yeah, they're around, right. those are the two big themes, and in the frame of this kind of movie, it's like there were times where I thought, are we laughing too much at the fact that this is basically a slave who's being kept mm-hmm. here and being tortured for information every time he doesn't give anything up? Like, right. I thought, maybe, you know, like, you know, I, I I want this to be an adult horror film and that kind of goes with it, but are we... Are maybe we, too far. Are we trivializing, you know, the gravity yeah. of, of that sort of thing? I think by the end of the movie, you know, when he's freed and they actually kind of acknowledge oh, yeah, he's been kept as a slave. But the way that... It's weird to me that the so-called heroes of this film, how badly they treat Dobby, Mm -hmm. this person who is not only a complete victim, but historically is in the role of, of a slave. And just, like... They don't account for... Obviously, that comes with a bunch of assumptions about the fact that he's inferior that, you know, the elves are known to be duplicitous, all that sort of stuff. But those are kind of, like, bad well, stereotypes whole... that we don't really disprove and that the, the, the characters aren't kind of, like... No one's like, hey, don't... It's like, that's a living creature. Don't fucking talk Stop. to him that right. way. Exactly. And I'm, I'm like, unless you're doing something where, like... We're not at the point where they're trying to darken the image of Harry as a antihero yet. No, and yet yeah. his behavior towards Dobby... Is only excusable if he is this morally ambiguous character, which he has yet to become. To me,
0: well, he's also ignorant. He's ignorant yeah. of house elves.
1: Yeah, yeah, and... no, I know. I that's what I'm reading into it, but I don't. I just don't think the movie's kind of. Uh, I just think it kind of forgot that. You need to account for your behavior in other areas. I thought it worked quite well. Like. I, there was a deft way that they treated the uh, the idea that basically within the wizard community whatever it's called i'm sure there's a the wizarding world the wizarding world there is white supremacism and it's at hogwarts like eugenics is a big thing in the wizard world like and for some reason that came across in a way that seemed responsible and appropriate but I felt like we were laughing too much at a slave being kept as a slave and being hurt. So, and it's interesting that he's not in so many more of these movies, because I I, I kept I felt like I felt like somebody's got to deal with what they how they treat Dobby at some point.
0: <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of house elf stuff that's in the books that don't make it into the movies. It felt like that. You know, just sort of the idea. Even say Ron, who's from a wizarding family, who's they like it that you know. So there's this whole idea. Oh, okay, that
1: sounds that sounds worse. Okay. That it's
0: much worse that the slave likes being the slave, and they want you know. So this this that whole other thing. But by the time you get to Order of the Phoenix, it starts coming into play about the manner in which you treat, because like serious, He gets a
1: hero's death, doesn't he?
0: Yeah, a he gets a hero's death, but even before that, in the Order of the Phoenix, in the book, Sirius essentially dies because of how he treats his house elf.
1: Mm.
0: So, you know, at at a certain point, Dumbledore will make the point that how you treat all living creatures matters. Like if he yeah. had treated his house elf differently, he he wouldn't have
1: died. So, but let's but let's face it. JK Rowling as a human being doesn't understand that. So uh, apparently to. so, yeah. I mean I was I was one of the probably one of the few people who was happy that she was outed as a transphobic prick. Yeah. Uh, no. And yes, a woman can be a prick, JK. <laughs> All right.
0: I think that's a good place to leave it for this segment. We're going to take another break <laughs> and then we'll come back and we'll finish out Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets right after this.
1: If you're anything like me, you spend the majority of the day wondering whether you want coffee, beer or wine. Whichever way you fall, Brew Bar has you covered. Located in the heart of Third Avenue Village in glorious downtown Chula Vista, California, which is also my neck of the woods, Brew Bar is a coffee shop, bar and eatery rolled into one delightful package. Tim and Alex run the place and let me tell you listeners, these guys know their coffee. And after you've been in their company... So will you. They turn me on to pour over and it's literally all I drink now. If for some crazy reason you don't want to try the best coffee in the world, they've got espresso drinks, all kinds of teas and even coffee cocktails. You heard me. Coffee tails. And we're just getting started. Bottle service on craft beer and wine, alcoholic and caffeinated potions, an all day food menu with plenty of vegan options. All served up in an atmosphere hip enough to know you're getting the best quality, but not too hip that you feel the need to drive to 7-Eleven and get a bucket of brown swill. Brewbar. It's the best place to be for beer, wine, coffee, and tea. And if you go, you might even see me.
0: And we're back. Tom and I are here talking about the 2002 film Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. Tom, you've been talking in the past about fantasy and mythology. So I guess what I want to ask you is. How much of this movie bothers you? I mean, do you like seeing the polyjuice potion and them turning into other people? Do you I know you don't like the look of that snake, but (laughs) the the dueling club. Uh. This is all shit I
1: really love in this movie, you know, or the spiders but, I mean, well, here's, here's my answer to that. Uh, that's within that kind of margin of error that links it to stuff that I like. So, again, it, it comes down to tone because I think what Columbus does, which is really uh, interesting in here, is like by marrying grown-up horror with kids slapstick, you end mm-hmm. up in the middle with gross-out comedy. And there's a lot of, like, vomiting and spitting up in this movie. Yeah. And it's great because it takes care of the body horror for the grown-ups who want something a little bit, you know, visceral. But it's also perfectly in line with, like, a, a high school or even, like, preteen comedy. Yeah, I love that scene where
0: Ron's spitting out the slugs. It's disgusting, and Hagrid, yeah. And Hagrid those... just says, better
1: out than in. Yeah, and those... um. <laughs> Uh, the Mandrakes, is it? Yeah, the baby. Yeah, and yeah, I, I thought, oh, you know, this is this is right like, right on the cusp of, you know, kid. Kid and adult entertainment, and I, I like. Well, it. and I always think of those mandrakes, those sort of plant babies,
0: because you have the scene where they're pulling them out of their pots and they're whining and crying, and then you have a scene later where Dumbledore's explaining that they're going to be chopped up into little bits and juiced to to make the mandrews you know, the, the mandrake potion to help unpetrify everybody. And so I yeah, just it's... think of the torture of those things being chopped up. <laughs> I did,
1: I I did too and but but like in an entirely appropriate way. So, you know, in in my head I went from you know, i on one one end I'm like this is like dissecting frogs at school. And then on the mm-hmm. other hand I'm going these babies are being aborted. <laughs> so I'm like I'm getting both things, and I like right. it. Um, but t- you know, you mentioned the spiders, and I, I kind of thought, well, the the because you know because it's backed by John Williams, and because Chris Columbus is a Hollywood director, this feels like the Goonies or Temple yeah. of Doom or something like that, which is a, with you know the the kind of Indiana Jones vibe. So I'm like, so I think that's you know that's something I can get down with. Uh, yeah, I it's felt not the same particu- way. It's I... not particularly. It's like if it's when the magic and the mythology starts going to this sort of metaphysical level that you have to try. You know, you have to try and understand it mm. on that level. If you can just understand it as you know, uh, magic. You know, is is a magic is a MacGuffin, which it largely is here. Um. Like, it doesn't speak to this greater mythology. Although, I did appreciate the fact that you spent the whole movie... Because, you know, I, there's various things that come in and out of my consciousness about this. One, that there's this guy called Voldemort, um, <laughs> who's sort of hanging around, kind of Blofeld-like, in this. Again, I need to... This is how I rationalize Everything, everything This how I rationalize it. I rationalize it. Um, and I like the fact that you think, oh, he's just not going to be in this movie. And then he is because I wrote down yeah. John Crease and I thought I'd accidentally I thought I was trying to say John Cleese, <laughs> but it's a, but I read it back and went no I meant John Crease I meant the fact that in Karate Kid three you think he's written out the movie and then he appears and he's back from right. his, from behind his own cutout <laughs> and I had a similar thing here I was like that's a nice little you know that's a good way to sort of uh, you know tease his. Uh, you, for him to just be this presence that's always kind of, always nearly there until he very much is there. Uh, and then it all goes well, downhill. <laughs> and I, yeah, you know, so.
0: You really, you think it goes downhill there?
1: No, I. I, I know, I don't want to give away what, what, what I feel because I also don't want to give the impression that I don't like Ray Fiennes. I think this is one of his greatest performances. Oh, he's. Fabulous, yeah. and I and, but, and again I am very mixed on the... my opinion of Ray Fine's performances. He's another <laughs> branner in my mind. It can go one <laughs> way or it can go the other. It, okay, it can be in Bruges or it can be Strange Days. They can't be both.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, does he really have a lot of Strange Days performances for you? Every other performance
1: from Ray Fine's is to me really awful. Oh wow! Yeah but but some of the best performances I've ever seen on screen as well. So, all right. Well, sticking to
0: this movie though. <laughs> I mean, like look, we're we're jumping around a little bit, but story-wise, of course, the chamber of secrets has been opened. The kids are more or less actively searching or trying to solve this mystery. Yeah. Yeah. And but that you have this whole added plot uh for the story in which you know, Harry Potter might be the last living relative. Yeah. You know, that last living relative, uh, um, Mm -hmm. Salazar Slytherin. Maybe I have the COVID fog, but (laughs) at any rate. You you, you sound like you've had a stroke to me,
1: but that's probably because I don't understand the words you use. Yeah, exactly.
0: Well, the, (laughs) The the, <laughs> the first movie, Harry Potter is beset by being Harry Potter. Everybody's looking yeah. at him all the time because he is who he is and he survived how he survived. In this movie, it switches to a more ominous, you know, a darker tone because now everybody thinks he might be mm. Salazar Slytherin's heir. And so he is somehow connected to all the bad yeah. shit that's happening. And... You have this added aspect of the mm. diary, which he finds. And I love that scene where, where, you know, he actually ends up thinking that maybe Hagrid opened mm. up the Chamber of Secrets. And once we get into the Chamber of Secrets, the thing I wanted to get to or say was that guy, that young actor who played mm. the young Voldemort, I think is great. Who is he again? I don't even know his name. I think he
1: turned. But I think he is pitch perfect doesn't he turn out to be somebody what's his what's his character name oh well you mean tom marvolo tom marvolo that's it yeah i'm just looking on imdb because i i have a feeling that he turns out to be someone that we've seen before you mean no i mean he'll turn out to be someone who's relatively famous but maybe that's what i mean Tom Riddle. No, Christian Coulson. Never heard of him. I am wrong. <laughs> um, sorry, Christian Coulson. Uh, but at any
0: rate, I think he's pitch perfect in that scene. I love him. And like I said in our opening, you know, minisode, I had kind of hinged this whole movie on how well the Basilisk looks at the end of this. And I think it looks great. I love the whole scene. Hmm.
1: What is what is a basilisk? <laughs> a serpent. That's a serpent, okay. But not the Doctor Who snake. No. Yeah, it's
0: the same thing. Oh. The huge, large serpent at the end of the movie. We're in
1: the Chamber of Secrets. Mm, okay. You didn't like it? I don't know. I don't think we're talking about the same snake, but I don't know. I don't have a problem with it. I like this movie. It's number two on my list. I don't like this series. I mean, what do you want from me? Well, I would um, like you to
0: know the difference between the small snake that comes out of... Why? So... <laughs> it's. I think it's the small snake. It's the small snake. The small snake looks bad. The serpent right. looks yes. good. Fine.
1: Good. Um... <laughs> But it's Uh, like you don't even know
0: that the serpent that I'm talking about. I'm talking about the last thing that Harry kills. He puts the sword through its head.
1: I don't remember it. I don't have a note saying it looks like Doctor Who, so I probably thought it was fine. Um, (laughs) One of the things, I I, I mean, I thought about this. I guess this is from the first movie. We'll find out now. Oh, yeah. uh, Because it's in all the other movies, is the moving photographs. Oh, yeah, sure. Animated photographs. And I thought, oh, that's a great cinematic solution to sequels where people look at photographs of characters who aren't there. <laughs> right. Like a moving image version of that. Right. Um, and then, the you know, the books that come to physical life mm-hmm. in here was like a really nice metaphor for this being a literary adaptation. And often at times in this movie, we're just looking at characters read a book. <laughs> and I thought that was kind of, in- that was like stylistically interesting because one of the things you got to do in a literary adaptation, even though I don't know su- su- in terms of substance what this movie adapted from the book and what it didn't, I know that they've thought about, well, how do we address the fact that this was a book and that we're adapting it into a movie? Like they thought about that on yeah, an imagistic right. level and I definitely got that. I like the fact that the flashbacks were unreliable That we're essentially doing like a Usual Suspects, right? Yeah, exactly. And we were doing like Godfather Two with magic. (laughs) We got the split, the split historical period, but it's all on the same screen because Harry can appear there as a, 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 an apparition, Mm -hmm. like Woody Allen style in his own history. Um, (laughs) So, a lot of the stylistic choices here, I like. I tell you, what what gets me about. Columbus's direction, and we were talking a little bit about the pod races. He's like the anti-George Lucas. His problems as a director are the reverse of George Lucas's problems as a director. His foregrounds are way too busy, and there's <laughs> nothing going on in his background. Right. Whereas like George Lucas is like he's staging the front stuff really well. He's putting a bunch of shit on the Bunch of shit.
0: You, like when you go and watch the the re edited Four, five, yeah. and six.
1: There's like that's where that's at. Jaws farting and right. falling off horses. It's just like it's just insane. So I, I I did I did kind of think that, but um yeah I'm I'm with yeah I'm with that. And well, but let's talk about the act. Let's we could wind up talking about the acting because we haven't really addressed that yet. That's true. My feeling is, and I know you're gonna disagree with this. Um. The central trio we here are horrid i mean harry hermione and ron off and you know do you know do you know what i'm 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 not compare i don't expect them to be better than you know The greatest cast ever, uh, the greatest British cast ever assembled. I'm not expecting them to be as good as Robbie Coltrane, Jason Isaacs, Alan Rickman. I am not comparing them to them. I am comparing them to the other kids at that school who are categorically better actors than they are, but they're not as they're not as good looking, and. I th- I, they're not as good looking, and I don't know. I don't know what else. I don't know what's keeping them from casting these talented kids. Every time a supporting kid character opens his mouth, I'm like, "Well, they, you know, they sound as if their mouths have developed, <laughs> unlike our <laughs> central trio." I can't, can't even. I cannot enunciate completely,
0: words. I cannot completely disagree with you, because yeah, you're right. I mean, there, there's all of that is at play. Emma Watson can't even speak yet. (sighs) I think you're you're far more harsher than I would be, though. Yeah, but I mean, it's funny because when you mentioned all the other kids, I mean, it's funny that we because they are great. They're really so they're really great children act. You know, child actors. I mean, there's. They do They're, seem far more natural.
1: Yeah. They're just uglier. Yeah. That's it. Yeah, you're yeah, that's well, true. so I mean, I think But I, I also but,
0: think I, the trio grows over time and I think they become quite good actors
1: throughout the series. I I mean, I also you know, I don't want to treat them all the same. I I mean, I think Emma Watson is still a terrible actor. But um I think here she she looks like her mouth hasn't formed yet. but, and you know, Ron, I have no opinion about, but I don't think he's doing a very good job here, and Harry, I mean Daniel Radcliffe I think is still a little on the bland side for me, but he's competent and there's little traces of that competency here Mm -hmm. and you know, you don't want that character to be too interesting because it fucks up their role in the story Yeah, certainly at this point, you want him to be like you know, Luke Skywalker in The New Hope, like nondescript, uh, or Neo in The Matrix, kind of like not too interesting at this point. <laughs> Need room for them to grow. Yeah, but I just—it's just comparing it. You know, every time, I, I guess it's also like all the all the kids—they all speak with this kind of like these sort of trained drama school accents which is how the rest of the world understands how the British speak but the the supporting actor kids all speak with regional accents which mm-hmm. is how British people really speak right yeah. so I think that's a factor too I think there's a huge amount of like these kids are too ugly and too regional to be the leads in this in this Hollywood movie and that that makes me angry uh, but it wouldn't if these guys were like vaguely talented and I don't think they are Oh, I, th- I think they're talented. It's also, I mean, we'll get into this with later movies, but having seen Daniel Radcliffe send himself up in, ex- in Ricky Gervais's Extras. Oh, hilarious. I can't see him do anything that's romantic or sexual anymore. <laughs> um, because there's no distinction between that. <laughs> that any, the, and when, when they get to all the puberty stuff. But here, yeah, I mean, it just it really rubbed me the wrong way. Um, so you know, that's some that's some context when we get to Deathly Hallows Part One, and I have to watch the just these characters on screen. Right. That's partly why it's such a. a well, huge, and I but, I just but... I don't have the adverse reaction you you do
0: to them, as actors. I can see in the first two movies that they are at the beginning of something. But by the time we get to the third movie, I think they've grown as actors in a way that for me, I, I
1: can see the jump. I mean, it's also, I mean, it's also, it's cultural. It's like the Jake Lloyd syndrome. You're trying to cast based on what you want them to look like. To look like, right. And sound like, not what their capabilities are. Yeah. You know?
0: Yeah,
1: I'll agree with that. And that's, I mean, it's okay for them to be worse than some of the greatest actors who've ever lived, (laughs) but not for them to be worse than their peers significantly. And I think any time they're asked to carry the action on their own, I think this movie really suffers, and when Emma Watson is out of the movie, everything gets better. Um, for me, all right. But so that was just that's the kind of starting point of this. Um, but I mean, what what can what can you say about a, you know a movie where Alan Rickman and Maggie Smith are kind of essentially cameos yeah. <laughs> about like what the kind of the deep bench that they have. But how good are they? I mean, they're so oh, they're, good. Yeah. They're perfect. Everyone is, everyone is kind of perfectly cast. cast. Yeah. And you know, they're also not.
0: And you've mentioned Jason Isaacs a couple of time, times. <sighs> wow. And this is the, his first appearance in the series. Oh, and I, didn't, I thought we'd seen him. So good. <laughs> I didn't get that. Of That's course cool. you didn't. I knew you wouldn't. But one of my favorite notes that I took was, and it's one of my favorite moments in the movie, at the end you know, Harry has stabbed the diary, which we'll find out later is a horcrux and Jason Isaacs comes to the school and wonders why Dumbledore's back and you know, you have that whole bit. Mm. And Dumbledore explains that it was Voldemort and he was trying to get through you know, via this diary and Jason Isaacs ad-libbed, improvised the line where he looked down at Harry Potter and said, uh, well, let us hope that Harry Potter will always be here to save the day. Mm. And Daniel Radcliffe improvised the line that said, don't worry, I will be.
1: Okay, great.
0: That's pretty great. Yeah,
1: he should be a writer. (laughs) Instead of an actor. (laughs) Um, Sorry, that was mean. No, that that was great. That's that's very impressive. Did and you make
0: it to the end of the credits, by
1: the way? Yes, I did. I saw the extra Kenneth Branagh scene. All right. I li- I liked that. Um, first of all, I, li- I like the fact that, because, you know, I- I'm trained in this sort of Marvel movie, again, yeah. like post this, where mm-hmm. post-credits scene, bit of essential information. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, oh. And then it was I was like, oh, it's Kenneth Branagh. Oh, it just matters for his plot and now that plot is done. Done. Yay! Yeah. That scored for me on everything. I was like I was like if you miss this, you would lose nothing. Right. But I've seen it. It's an extra bit of Candace Branagh, and it's funny. Nice. <laughs> um I also you know shout out to I like the fact that that you know we have like An intergenerational cast as well. We have great actors from literally every generation of actor, Mm -hmm. um, like all the way up to Richard Harris. And uh, Shirley Henderson as Moaning Myrtle. Yeah. I mean, that's Babu Frick, for those of you who don't know. That's the voice of Babu Frick. Well, and the most
0: remarkable thing, because she shows up in later movies, like her ability to always look like a 17-year-old student is
1: astonishing. (laughs) She very rarely plays her own age. Yeah. I you know in in the movie Greed she plays like uh, an octogenarian woman, she often plays like children, yeah, and is equally convincing as both. But I like the fact that you know this movie, even though it is very much this big Hollywood production, and it is throwing at you like Hollywood-approved British actors like right, Alan yeah, Rickman, right. but. You know, there are these slightly more alternative younger actors who are getting screen time, doing amazing things. And and David Bradley, too, who, like, floats between being well-known and not well-known. He's probably known to most people through this as the janitor. What's his name? Um, the custodian.
0: Yeah. Uh, God, fog brain again. Um... It'll come to
1: me. Yeah. And, you know, he's... But, I mean, he's, like... But you he's, know, yeah. Very well The, well the known astonishing thing
0: for me is to see him in this and then see him in, like, Game of Thrones. Amazing. And, yeah. So, I mean, you, you... You can see the extent to which he is a great actor.
1: <laughs> yeah. And, you know, as someone who has watch movies that John Cleese did not need to be in that he was in I was grateful Mm -hmm. for how they used him in this movie Okay. there's just a python floating about well because he disappears after it he does like you don't see him again which again should have been the case in the Bond films as well (laughs) but was not (laughs) Uh, that's funny So this is this is a good this is a, a good starting point I think. Absolutely, I think it, it. Actually, no, it gets better and then it gets worse. For me, I know you <laughs> don't feel that way because you have no zero objectivity.
0: <sighs> How but
1: dare you! I guess that I guess we have to come at this zero objectivity and zero generosity. Filch, that's who it is. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs>
0: okay. Anything else you want to get off your chest for <laughs> Harry Potter
1: and the Chamber of Secrets? Another thing that grinds my gears. No. <laughs> no, I I as I said, I think the less the lesson of this is like uh when you're watching a film series, you need to watch the whole thing and then go back because there's no way I would have put this so high up if I knew what was coming. <laughs> I didn't know how much I enjoyed this movie until the entire series was over. <laughs> and I didn't funny. know. I get and also you know I, it helped that I watched Home Alone, the the Home Alone movies before doing this podcast as well. Because then I'm I'm just what like, are
0: you doing watching those movies? I have a three year old son, Mike. <laughs> All right, fair enough. <laughs> I'm like, without the purposes of this podcast, you're watching sequels. What the hell are you doing?
1: Well, I did. i I, I kind of got two, two minutes into home alone two alone in new York and and i I suggested that we change the channel because I was like, I was like I, I I can see a future in which I'm watching this again. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's great.
0: All right. For Tom Stewart from Lonesome Whistle Productions, I'm Michael Schantz from the How Dare You Awards. We will see you next time for Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. Say goodbye, Tom. You're never going back to that school. (laughs) If only. Take care, everybody.